Let's turn to Genesis chapter 16. We're on a series going through the life of Abraham, Genesis 12 through 25. We're on chapter 16 this morning. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about how often God calls his people to wait on him. To wait on him. You've experienced that, right? Waiting on the Lord means that you have some longing, some need in your life, your heart. And you know God has given you a promise that addresses that longing and that need. So you've got the need, you've got the promise, but there's a gap between the need and the promise and the fulfillment. There's times where God in his wisdom and his love chooses to delay the fulfillment of the promise for a time. We'll see that in Genesis 16. And so during that gap between the promise and the fulfillment, we wait on the Lord. We lean into Him. We trust Him. We pray. We pour our souls out before Him. We trust His wisdom and His timing. We wait on the Lord. Here's some examples. God promises to strengthen our faith when it's weak. And you know, when your faith is weak, when you're feeling Far from God, when you're doubting, when you're struggling, oh, we just long, God, a fresh touch from you through your word, give it to me, right? So there's this longing, strengthen me through your word. So we have a longing for that. But there are times when we open up the scriptures, start to pray, and God wants us to wait on him before the strengthening comes. It's because he loves us. It's because it's good for our souls. There's lots of reasons why, but he calls us to wait, God promises to give us wisdom. And you know how it is if you face a decision where the, the consequences of a wrong decision are weighty and you're feeling like, what if I make a wrong decision? And God's promised to give us wisdom, but there are times when God calls us to wait on him for wisdom. So we're waiting on him. We're praying. We're seeking counsel from people. We're reading the scriptures, but we, we don't yet know what his will is for us in this. And we're waiting. We're trusting. We're leaning in. You've been there, right? So God frequently calls us to wait on him. And it's not easy to do that, is it? In fact, when we wait on the Lord, it is easy for us to start to doubt that he'll fulfill the promise. It's easy for us to not just doubt that he'll fulfill the promise, but it's easy for us to turn from him and take matters into our own hands. Anybody ever taken matters into your own? Don't show the hands, but right? Okay, we have. And that's what happened to Abram and Sarah in Genesis chapter 16. They stopped trusting God's promise and took matters into their own hands. So let's look at this chapter. First question, what were Sarah and Abram longing for God to do? The answer is at the beginning of verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Okay, God had promised Abram... To be, that he'd become a great nation, right? Lots of offspring, lots of children. And God had promised Abram that one of his offspring, through one of his offspring, God would bring salvation to every people of every nation and tongue and tribe. And of course, we all know who was that. It's Jesus Christ, right? The great, 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 great grandson of Abram was Jesus Christ, who, born of a virgin, died on the cross to pay for our sins, rose again, and through Jesus, salvation comes to people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's why we're here. That's what's going on in the world right now. So God had promised children to Abram, but God had not fulfilled the promise yet. And look at the beginning of verse 3. 
So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, okay, 10 years had gone by since Abram had heard the promise. Okay, so think of how difficult this would have been. There's Abram and Sarah. God's promised us children, honey, okay? And we're now here in the land of Canaan, right? Okay, so first month, end of the first month, oh, no pregnancy yet. Oh, okay, all right. Okay, well, second month for sure, right? Second month, no pregnancy, second month, oh, third month, no pregnancy, fourth, fifth month, first year, no pregnancy, second year, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth year, no pregnancy. Can you feel how hard that would have been? Very, very difficult. But God was calling them to trust his timing, trust his wisdom. My ways are beyond your ways. I'm faithful to all my promises. Keep trusting me. Wait on me. That's what God was calling them to do. So what did they do? The answer is in verses 1 through 4. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he, Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived. This is a tragic story. If you're feeling like this is a problem, you're right. This is a huge problem. Sarah had an Egyptian servant, a young woman named Hagar. And in the surrounding cultures at the time, a childless woman who had a female servant could give that servant to her husband as a second wife. And the child born to that second wife could then be adopted by the childless woman. That was a practice in surrounding other nations, other, other cultures. And that's what Sarah does. So she asks Abram to bear a child by Hagar, and Abram agrees. And so Sarah gives her woman servant, Hagar, to Abram as his second wife. And this is shocking. This was not right. One reason it's shocking is because 14 chapters earlier, God had made it very clear what marriage is. Okay, turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 24, 14 chapters earlier, very clear. Listen to what we read. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So when a man and a woman commit to each other to marriage before God, before other people, God joins them together in this one flesh relationship. One flesh is more than just the sexual union. It's a joining together. Remember, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man break asunder. 
So when a man and a woman commit in marriage before God and before other people, God joins them together in this one flesh, this close one flesh relationship. But think about it. A man can only be one flesh with one woman. A woman can only be one flesh with one man. And so monogamy, one man and one woman, is clearly God's pattern for marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you know that many righteous men had more than one wife. But that was not God's plan. And up to this point in Genesis, every righteous man had one wife. The only person who has more that we can read is Lamech, who clearly is an ungodly man in chapter 4. So God's plan for marriage was one man, one woman. Every righteous man up to this point had one wife, but now Sarah wants Abram to take a second wife for the sake of children. So what this shows is that Abram and Sarah had stopped waiting on the Lord. They'd stopped relying on the Lord, and they were taking matters into their own hands. And we've done the same thing, right? We've all done the same thing. Let's say you you long to advance at work, you long to advance in your career, and you're praying, and you're waiting on the Lord, and you're trusting the Lord, but month after month goes by, year after year goes by, you're not advancing how tempting it would be to take matters into your own hands, to start cutting corners, maybe to start slandering people, to start doing unethical things to try to get ahead, right? Because, well, God's not doing it. I want to get ahead. Easy to do. Or let's say you want to get married. You long for marriage, and there's no passionate believers around that seem like they're suitable potential spouses, so you settle for somebody who's not passionately in love with Jesus Christ and trusting Him. Stop waiting on the Lord take matters into your own hands, right? It's something we can easily struggle to do. So just like Abram and Sarah, we are tempted to stop waiting on the Lord. But what we're going to see in this passage is that as hard as it is to wait on the Lord, and it is hard, right? Waiting on the Lord is not easy, but as hard as it is to wait on the Lord, it's much harder not to. The consequences of not waiting on the Lord are much worse than the difficulties of waiting on the Lord. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. What happened? Because Abram and Sarah did not wait on the Lord. Moses writes verses 4 through 6 to show us the consequences. First, Hagar turns against Sarah. That's verse 4. And he, Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived... And when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, on Sarah. So Hagar got pregnant, looked with contempt on Sarah. Now, from all that we can see up to this point, Sarah and Hagar had a perfectly harmonious relationship. No hint of any trouble. But when Hagar became pregnant, problems developed, relationship turned sour, Hagar started to look down on Sarah, possibly because, you know, I'm, I'm Abram's favorite wife now. You're not able to get pregnant. I'm, I'm pregnant, you know, looking down, all kinds of division and jealousy. That's what developed here. So Hagar turns against Sarah. Second, Sarah turns against Abram. Because if Sarah's angry, Hagar's looking down at her with contempt. Sarah gets angry. Look at what she does in verse 5. Sarah said to Abram, 
may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she'd conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. You know, what's going on here? Okay, well, first of all, Abram shares the blame with Sarah, right? Surely he shares the blame. As a godly husband, he should have taken the lead and said, Sarah, let's wait on the Lord, hon. One man, one woman, one flesh, let's wait on the Lord. No, let's not do this. That's what Abram should have done, right? Right, men? Absolutely. Should have risen up and said, hon, I know it's hard. No, let's pray. God will meet us. But that's not what Abram did. He went along with Sarah's suggestion. So Abram shares the blame equally with Sarah here. But in verse 5, Sarah is not sharing the blame with Abram. She's putting all the blame on Abram. You see that? Easy to do when we get angry at someone. And that's wrong. So here now, not just has Hagar turned against Sarah, but Sarah's turned against Abram. Third consequence, Abram abdicates his leadership. I couldn't think of another word. Abdicate means like you, you bail on it or you, you, you walk away from it or what are some other words? Anyway, so Abram was called to be the leader. Look, look at verse 6, how he abdicates his leadership. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So what's going on here? I mean, God had called Abram and every husband here to be the loving, serving, head leader of your family. You're responsible for what happens in your family. The Lord will give you grace for that. It'll drive you to your knees. But that is your call, man. You may not have realized that, but now you know, okay? It's on you, all right? Now you know. That's the call. And Abram knows that Hagar is treating Sarah with contempt. So what should Abram have done? Gone to, gone to, did I say that right? Abram knows that Hagar is treating Sarah with contempt. What Abram should have done is gone to Hagar and said, listen, let's talk about this. This is not right. Okay, God's in control of who gets pregnant, who doesn't. Shouldn't look down on her, right? That would have been an appropriate step. Plus, Abram knew that God had called Abram and Sarah to be a blessing to everyone because of how much God had blessed them. That was two weeks ago. So he should have gone to Sarah and said, you know, Sarah, even if she doesn't, even if Hagar doesn't stop, we need to forgive her. We're to be a blessing to Hagar here. God will bless us. He'll keep pouring out blessing. Let's forgive her. All right, right? Isn't that what Abram should have done? I get the picture like Abram maybe was watching TV and just says, whatever, you know, I'm watching the football game. Something like that, right? Okay. Okay, no, TV wasn't back then, but you get what I'm saying. Abram does nothing. He says, do whatever you want. So he abdicates his leadership. So Hagar turns against Sarah. Sarah turns against Abram. Abram abdicates his leadership. And then finally, Sarah turns against Hagar. End of verse 6. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, Hagar, and she, Hagar, fled from her. Now, we don't know what this harsh treatment was. Was it physical? Was it verbal? But either way, we know it was harsh enough that this pregnant woman heads out into the wilderness, flees out into the wilderness. It was harsh. You see that? It was harsh. So think of all that's happened because Abram and Sarah stopped waiting on the Lord. They broke God's command regarding marriage. One flesh. Not only that, then Hagar turns against Sarah. 
Sarah turns against Abram. Abram abdicates his leadership, and Sarah turns against Hagar. And so as a result, there's Hagar, alone, pregnant, fleeing out into the wilderness, all by herself. That's what results from taking matters into our own hands and not waiting on the Lord. Now, at this point, this focus of the story shifts from Abram and Sarah to Hagar. And what we're going to see in these next verses is God, our loving, faithful, kind, merciful God coming and caring for Hagar. Now, it's appropriate to say, how can God do that? Hagar, like all of us, had sinned against God, and she had. And it's because of what Jesus would do thousands of years in the future, right? God had changed Hagar's heart at some point in the story. She turned and said, I trust you. Forgiveness come through what the Messiah would do in the future. All of Hagar's sins were paid for by Jesus, all right? And God pours out his grace, pours out his mercy, pours out his blessing upon her. So what does God do for Hagar, verses 7 through 14? First, God comes to her. This is verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, found Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Okay, what is this angel of the Lord? That phrase is used often in the Old Testament. You've seen it. Sometimes that phrase refers to an angel. An angel is not God. An angel is a created being, okay, who serves God and fulfills his purposes. So sometimes the angel of the Lord is an angel. But that word angel can also mean messenger. It has other meanings. And sometimes in the context, it's clear that the angel of the Lord is God himself appearing to people. Sometimes it's just an angel. Sometimes it's God himself. The context makes it clear, which it is. And the context here shows that this is God himself. The reason I say that is notice how often the phrase, the angel of the Lord is used in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. See that in your Bibles? In those verses, the angel of the Lord speaks to her, speaks to her, speaks to her, speaks to her. Then in verse 13, she tells us who it was that was speaking to her, and she says it was God. Look at verse 13. So she, Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Angel of the Lord four times, and here that is the Lord, Yahweh. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing for she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. So God himself comes to Hagar out in the wilderness. Second, God cares for her. Verse 8, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. So God comes to her and asks her, what's going on? Right? Now, this is not because God doesn't know. This is because God wants her to pour her soul out before him and tell him what's going on so she can experience his love and his care for her in her time of need, her time of difficulty. Do you take time to pour your soul out before the Lord when you're grieving or struggling or having a hard time? God wants you to do that. He will meet you in that. He will fellowship with you in that. God says, where have you come from? Where are you going? God wants her to see and to feel how much he cares for her. So just think about this picture. I love just kind of pulling back and thinking, okay, there's God. God is God, right? Creator of the universe. Massive universe means 
powerful God, infinitely powerful God, sovereign over everything, has been in existence from eternity past with no beginning, eternity future, eternal God, no beginning, sovereign over everything. And here's little Hagar, an Egyptian servant girl, and God comes to her, and God cares for her. Isn't that encouraging? And it's because of Jesus, right? And that can be yours because of Jesus. So God comes to her, God cares for her. Third, God tells her what to do. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So there's Hagar alone, pregnant, out in the wilderness. Where's she going to go? What's she going to do? So she had no idea. She's sitting there out in the wilderness. Now what, right? And God comes to her. God cares for her. And God tells her exactly what she should do. I love this picture of God's love and his mercy. Return to your mistress and submit to her. Fourth, God comforts her with his promise. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Large offspring coming to Hagar. Multiply your offspring. God himself is going to do this for her. Okay, which means that if he's going to multiply her offspring, he's going to care for her through this next week, right? This next month, these next years. Okay, so I can go back and I can submit. She was harsh last time, but all right, I'll trust you. I'll go back and submit to her. You said I'm going to have a, a large, you know, number of offspring. I trust you. You see what's going on here? And how comforting. You know how it is when you have this sense from God that you know exactly what he's calling you to do. There's such peace. There's such comfort. Don't you experience that? Oh, he's so faithful to do that. And that's what he does for Hagar. Fifth, God listens to her and looks after her. Verses 11 through 14. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The word Ishmael in Hebrew means God will hear. So call his name, God will hear. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well, the spring that she was there nearby, was called Beer Lahai Roy. Beer is the Hebrew word for well. Lahai is of the living one. Roy is who sees me. So the well of the living one who sees me. God sees her. Isn't that comforting to think of the God of the universe he sees you right now. He knows exactly what you're facing, knows exactly what you're dealing with, knows exactly the state of your heart. So comforting, so encouraging, and so beautifully glorifying to God. What a loving God. Now, you might ask, well, how can God do that? There's like, what, 8 billion people on the earth now or we're getting close to that point? Okay, well, God is infinite, right? So he can give you his undivided attention at the same time as he's giving other people his undivided attention too. He's, you don't need to take a number. All right? Just, he's, he's got you. He knows he's looking at you with all of his attention right now, every one of us and, and everyone. And that's what Hagar experiences. Now, notice verse 12. 
God says that her son will grow up to be a man of strife. Okay, but notice what happens before that verse, verse 11, and what happens after that verse. Verse 11, this son will be named Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Again, the Hebrew word Ishmael means God will listen, God hears. Then notice in verse 13, she responds by praising and worshiping God. She says, you are a God of seeing. You've seen me. Right? That's, that's worship. She's praising him. You are glorious. You've seen me, little me here in the wilderness. You've seen me. You are a God of seeing because she has seen how God has looked after her. And in verse 14, I love this. She's so gripped by God has seen me. He cares about me. I'm going to name this well Beer Lahai Roy, right? The well of the living one who sees me. So from there on, this name, this, this well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Everybody who went there would remember, God sees us when we trust him. Because here's what we've seen in verses 7 through 14. God comes to her. God cares about her. God tells her what she should do. God comforts her with his promise. And God listens to her. And God looks after her. So beautiful how God intervenes in a very painful situation and cares for Hagar. Now, what's Moses' point in this passage? What's the point? When the biblical authors write history, like Moses does here, it's always history with a point. Moses didn't write every single detail of Abram's life. He chose events to teach us something. And so what is the lesson he wants us to see from chapter 16? I think it's in the last two verses. Here's Moses' point. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Remember, that's God will hear. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael, God will hear to him. Okay, so Hagar returns to Sarah. She gives birth. And notice that it's Abram who names the son Ishmael. God will hear. Which means that Hagar told Abram what God had told her out in the wilderness, right? Just picture the conversation. Um, Abram, God wants his name to be Ishmael. God will hear. Now think about that. Imagine what life would have been like in the, in the household with a son named God will hear. Think about how this would have been repeated and re, they would have been reminded again and again and again. I, I'm going to go to the store with God, God will hear back in a few minutes, okay? Anybody seen God will hear? Right? Where is he? Could you give God will hear a bath, please? Okay, so I mean, numerous times every day, God will hear, God will hear, God will hear, God will hear, God will hear. And, and why end with that being the emphasis in these last two verses? I think it's because that's what Abram and Sarah needed to hear. Right? That's what they had stopped believing. They had stopped believing that God was hearing them. And they saw that 10 years had gone by without Sarah getting pregnant. They'd been waiting, waiting, waiting. God promised us, I guess we'll just take matters and we'll just make this happen and sinning in, in the process of making it happen. And so see, Hagar shows us what Abram and Sarai should have done because when Hagar was out in the wilderness, she called upon the Lord. She prayed and cried out to God. You see that in verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. 
he listened to her as she cried out about her affliction. So Hagar was out in the wilderness calling upon the Lord. She was waiting on the Lord. She was seeking the Lord. That's what Abraham and Sarah didn't do at the beginning of the chapter. Abraham and Sarah should have waited on the Lord. Abram and Sarah should have believed that God will hear. In Grace Church, that's what we need to do as well. How many of you are waiting on the Lord for something right now, something that you're longing for God to do and you haven't seen it happen yet? I mean, I could put numerous hands up on answer to this one. And if you're not at that point now, you will be. It's a frequent experience in our Christian lives. I mean, why did God wait at least 10 years to this point, we'll see exactly how long it is, for the promise of children to be fulfilled. Why? Oh, he has good reasons, wise reasons, loving reasons, reasons that are so good that for all of us, we will bow before him at that final day and say, thank you for the delays. Thank you for waiting. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But it's hard before we see how the whole picture comes about. So I want to call us, Grace Church, to be a church that individually and collectively knows how to wait on the Lord. If you're longing for God to fulfill one of his promises to you, and if the time has gone on, and you started to think, I'm not sure I can wait any longer, I'm not sure I can handle this delay any longer, understand, God will hear. Ishmael, pour out your soul before him. Strengthen me, help me. What should I do in the meantime? Come to me. Comfort me. Give me wisdom. Strengthen my faith. He will hear. Cry out to him. Pour out your soul before him and keep waiting on him. Psalm 34, no one who waits on the Lord will be ashamed. No one. Never has anyone who's waited on the Lord regretted it. Never. No one who waits on the Lord will be ashamed. Because when we wait on the Lord, we'll experience what Hagar experienced. Right? God came to her. God will come to you. God cared for her. God will care for you. God told her what she should do. God will tell you what you should do. God strengthened her with his promise. God will strengthen you with his promise. And God listens to her and looks after her. And God will listen to you and look after you. Wait on the Lord. Now let me tell you how my grandmother experienced this. Yesterday I remembered this story from her life. This is, I just love this story. So this is 1933. All right? This is in the, the depths of the depression, the financial depression that rocked the world. And my grandfather uh, had orange groves. He grew oranges in California, had lots and lots of orange groves that he grew oranges on. And he was also at the same time moving into, going into the ministry and starting a radio program where he would preach the gospel. So he had lots of things going on. But the, the orange harvests were terrible right at that time. And he'd been losing money dramatically, had lost some properties and was fighting to keep from losing any other properties. And so the stress in the Fuller household was massive. And he went off one morning to, again, head to some lawyers' offices to try to negotiate you know, more time. And my grandmother reached a point where she says, I just can't take this stress anymore. I just, I just, this is just too hard. I, just, I can't handle this anymore. 
And so she poured out her soul before God and just said, help me. I, I don't think I can take this. Please, we're, we're in such financial pressure. And then she went into my grandfather's study and pulled a book of Charles Spurgeon's sermons off the shelf and opened up this book of Charles Spurgeon sermons and found one of his sermons on Jeremiah 33.3. And at the top of the page at the beginning was Jeremiah 33.3. And here's what that verse says. Call upon me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you don't know. And God powerfully met her through that verse, comforted her, strengthened her faith. And the reason we know that is because six months later, some months later, she, she went back to the office, pulled open that book, same page, and she wrote at the top of that page these words. Here's what she wrote. When I called upon God in desperation in August 1933, he answered me by directing me unmistakably to the library shelf on which this book stood and to this sermon. It brought great comfort and enabled me to trust God and to await the unfolding of his plans for us. Don't you love that? She did not give up. She did not take matters into her own hands. She kept waiting on the Lord. And God met her, and God was faithful to her. And Grace Church, as you don't give up, as you don't take matters into your own hands, as you keep waiting upon the Lord, God will meet you, and God will be faithful to you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would especially touch those right now who are in that gap between your promise and the fulfillment. And Lord, we pray, would you right now strengthen their faith through Genesis 16? Would you right now comfort them? Would you right now draw near to them and hold them up? We praise you for Psalm 34, that no one who waits on the Lord will be put to shame. Impress that promise upon their hearts right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Lord, let them continue to wait on you. Let them say, I will keep waiting on you until you work. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to the right or to the left. I'm going to keep waiting on you. Please, Lord, strengthen hearts with that right now, I pray. Lord, let us be a church that knows how to wait on you because you are faithful. Help us to trust that in the delays, you are working delights for us. Strengthen us with that, Lord. Even before the delights are seen or felt, help us to trust, Lord, that you are only delaying because the delight will be all the greater when we see you working. We praise you that you heal our hearts. We praise you that you give us life. We want to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.